I want to invite you to open up to the book of Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And just to make you aware, uh, the last two days, this room has been utilized for some specialized training um, that has to do with um, just really how we connect with people. It's targeted at parents of uh, children who've experienced foster care and adoption uh, because there are some unique things that, um, that are addressed in that. But really, every single time I've gone through the training, uh, it's, it's really about people connection. It's actually about dealing just with our own pain and hurts and injuries and not continuing to inflict that or interpret the world through that lens. Uh, it was really amazing. We had other pastors from the area here. We had foster and adoptive parents. We had in-process foster parents. We had teachers and educators from next door. Um, and so, and then just young people. I was so amazed. Uh, two categories in particular. Some young people who aren't parents yet, uh, just getting some really good training. And guys, one of the things that NBC stands out... Um, in is we have people from our family ministry who work with our children that are going through this training to better serve the children of this church. So you want to talk about putting other people's needs ahead of your own. As parents, we have to grow in loving our kids. It's kind of our job. We're desperate for it. But how much more so people who don't have children in the ministry that are spending two days of training so they can better serve the children of our church very moving to just see that at this church, um, and that's gone on for years. So we just praise God for that. Where's Ellie? She's probably serving somewhere. Ellie, step inside for a second. Ellie did a bang-up job on this. Give it up for Ellie. Um, She was a brand-new young leader last year, and she took this on, and her eyes every week for six weeks was like this big, texting things, this and that. And this time, I don't know, I just rolled in. It all happened, and it didn't happen by magic. It happened by by Ellie Magic and a whole team of volunteers. Man, Camden and Josh, who you just saw up here, they were here all day, both days. Um, so just, just a, um, as Tal said, we have an amazing church family that put this on as a gift for, for our church family, or for our community. So just wanted to make you aware of that. You may not have known that. So um, another thing you may not have known is, uh, did you know that Neighborhood Bible Church has a motorcycle club? Anyone know that? Okay. It's true. Uh, we have a motorcycle club. This is a picture from 2015. Um, and uh, it's probably not that unique that a church has a motorcycle club. But the fact that we have both a motorcycle club and a working Scrabble board in our worship room, I think that puts us in the percent of churches in the whole wide world. I'm not sure of any other church that has both of those things. Um, we were out on a ride uh, in the summer of 2015, and here we are. That's right where we are, in fact. And let me just show you kind of what it looked like. It was, it was almost 100 degrees, and, um, and the rest of the scenery looked like this. Um, we were actually right near Pinnacles National Park, and we had left Hollister, and we're just driving through what looks like a Western movie set. It was awesome, and it was hot, hot, hot. So anytime you stopped, even for a few seconds... Uh, you just feel the heat kind of oppressive on you. While you're riding motorcycle, there's a lot of wind blowing. So we're riding along, and uh, all of a sudden, one person saw this. This isn't an actual picture, but they saw this on the side of the road. And it was about the size of this planter right here. And so we stopped and we turned around, and uh, remember, it's almost 100 degrees. All we see is dry 
field grass for as far as I can see. Oh, and by the way, there's high wind, and by the way, there's no cell signal. So we get off of our motorcycles, and we start, and, by, and we have little water bottles with us, like little plastic water bottles. We begin trying to put this fire out, and the more that we stomp on it and pour water on it and stomp on it some more and pour water on it, it's just going and growing. Now, it's not out of control yet, but we're kind of like going, we don't know what else to do. We only have a limited supply of water. There was like five of us there trying to stomp this thing out, and we are just dripping sweat. It was a pretty panicky feeling. Like It was kind of helpless to sit there and just go, man, this could go really, really, really bad. As we're sitting here trying to stomp it out, um, over the ridge comes this car. We hadn't seen a car in an hour. Comes this big old truck with a giant trailer pulling horses. And it pulls up, screeches to a halt, jumps out, and four guys who look like they're from the movie that we look like we're in, these Western-looking dudes with big old boots, the hats that are, I mean, hats are big, like real cowboy hats. They're big. That's why they need the big trucks, I think. I'm not sure. But they get out. They don't say a word to us. They run to their compartment, throw it open. They grab shovels. They grab water. They grab a fire extinguisher, and they start going to work on this fire. And this thing at this point now is beginning to head out to a field. It stops at the road because asphalt, it turns out, doesn't burn. Good thing. And probably in about uh, 20 minutes more or so, we were able to start getting this thing under control. It's still going. And pretty soon we see overhead uh, this um, Cal Fire airplane. So someone had spotted the smoke, called it in, whatnot. I bring up this story because of this. Our ability, our stopping that fire that day, and sort of my small part in it, um, went really well. It was very fortunate. We had a neighbor come who was coming home from something. They came, and they were in tears of gratitude. They understood the danger of what that little spark meant for their home, which was a mile down the road. They realized they they were about to lose everything. So they were so grateful that this happened. I bring all of this up because of this. The enemies of Jesus Christ tried to stamp out Christianity and weren't nearly as successful as the NBC Motorcycle Club was at stamping out the fire. In fact, here's what they did. They thought they would stomp and stamp and pour stuff on it, but what they poured on it was gasoline. And as the persecution happens, what happens to the gospel and to Christians is it goes, <laughs> everywhere they go, they are, one commentator put they are gossiping for the gospel. They just can't shut up about it. They are just going into all these places and they just keep talking and talking and talking about the Bible. One of those who's trying to do the stamping, in fact, one of the leaders, is a guy by the name of Saul. We saw it near the end of the chapter last week. Look at verse 8, chapter 1. This young man at the end of 7 is right there at the murder of the first Christian martyr. His name is Stephen. We looked at him last week. Verse 1, it says this, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. 
and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We just sang a song that uh, touched on some of the things we looked at last week, which is that God is in control of history. He's sovereign. The word sovereign simply means total control, that nothing is outside the sight or power of God. When you look at Stephen's speech, let me give you a few categories of what God is in control of, okay? Just from that one speech. God is in control of kings and nations and people and foreskins and weather and adoptions and wars and wombs. He's over all of it. He is steering and using and controlling history over all of time, throughout all of history, over the whole world. Now, what that sentence means is this. We just read in the book of Acts that great persecution arose against the church. And we read that Saul was ravaging the church and dragging people off to prison. So Christians are sometimes rightfully derided, scoffed at, mocked, for not thinking critically. If God is in total control, he's sovereign over all the events of world history and your life, when we get to difficult things, persecutions, people being dragged off, terrorized, unjustly treated, it means that he's in control of that as well. The abuse of his bride, the church. So we must wrestle with and think hard about hard things. Like how can God who is good and all-powerful either cause or allow or see and do nothing apparently about really wicked things going on in the world and in your world? Doesn't this take out so many people's faith? Many, many people I talked to, I used to believe, but I prayed and prayed and prayed, and God never heard my prayer, never answered my prayer, so I walked away. It clearly wasn't real. Lucas just prayed something really profound, and it was this chapter has been in my heart and mind for a long time, that our circumstances do not dictate who God is. It seems that way. It can feel that way. I heard this week, feelings make great followers, but feelings make terrible leaders. And if we lead with what we feel, if we lead with what only we can see, our world shrinks down to a tiny little drop of of the ocean. So God gives us a, a, a theology of suffering. What's a theology of suffering? We are to live what is in accord with sound doctrine. So how do we think soundly about pain and ravaging and abuse of the church? Well, many of these lessons uh, are, are hard won and acquired. So we can sort of study and think about it, but then we go through our own pain, our own abuse, our own struggles and troubles and pain, and it's something altogether differently. We won't take the time in this sermon to go through a theology of suffering. We've covered that ground before. We'll continue to touch on it. But let me just say that God gives us a framework for how to think through these things with. 
And you would do well to lean into those things. We know that troubles are a tool in the hand of a God who is still good. God's still good in your troubles. God's still good in the wickedness of what's going on in the world today. Let me show you this quote. You can tell I'm, I'm re-going through the uh, C.S. Lewis Narnia books, but I've just finished The Silver Chair. How great is this quote? There is nothing like a good shock of pain to dissolve certain kinds of magic. Let me give you a tiny bit of context, and you'll see why this is such a great quote. So using magic, the queen of the underworld is seducing Jill, Eustace, Rillian, and Puddleglum. And what she's doing is she's coaxing them, seducing them into believing lies. And then it says this, Puddleglum did, quote, a very brave thing. He went and he stamped on the fire with his bare feet. She was using this magic little fire that was going on. And in this moment of clarity, he sort of went and stomped on it with his bare feet. And then C.S. Lewis writes this, The pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear. And he knew exactly what he really thought. Next line. There is nothing like a good shock of pain to dissolve certain kinds of magic. Haven't you experienced this where you're going through life and you're sort of seduced and sucked into the culture and flow and just your emotions and in your head and in your little world, boom, you get a phone call, a diagnosis, a pain. You get news of a loved one. And all of a sudden, your world comes into much more sharp, clear focus. One of the things I get to do as a pastor is I get to see you all on some of your worst days. Some of your most humiliating days when you're laying in a hospital gown in a bed. I remember Rob Collins. Every time I drive by this hospital, I think of this. But I remember visiting Rob one time. He had an ailment that laid him flat on his back. And your world gets pretty simple and clear when you're in a hospital room hooked up to some things. All of a sudden, all these to-do lists, all these other things. And we talked about it. We sat there and just visited. We didn't talk set list. We didn't talk business. We didn't talk family. We just sat there and just, just kind of enjoyed each other's company. Pain has this clarifying effect in the hand of God. In fact, it's a hand. It's, it's, a, it's a gift, not just a tool for God. Isn't it true that what people mean for evil, God can use for good? He does. You ask Joseph and his brothers, read the end of Genesis. That story plays out in our life all the time if we stop and work through it and look at it. Remember that God is working in the dark. He's working in the dark of persecution in Acts chapter 8. In fact, he's not working just in spite of the trouble, but through the trouble. The, The trouble is actually the tool that takes the gospel from Jerusalem and forces Christians to go at rapid speed into Judea Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus commanded them to do. Stephen's death is something like a stone being thrown into a still pond. We're going to get rid of this guy. There's an impact, and he sinks out of sight. But what happens when you throw a stone into a smooth pond? Ripples occur. And there's something fascinating At the exact same time that he's going down, ripples come into existence where before there was absolutely nothing. 
And the ripples extend from a, from a splash of a stone in a pond at such speed and actually at such distance that it kind of would boggle the mind of that little stone if they could sort of see the picture of that impact. One more thing about ripples. You ever able to stop the ripples? You can't stop it. It just goes. So Stephen, boom, first martyr, and there's like a shockwave of gospel goodness that begins to go outward with the speed and sort of the reach of ripples on a pond. Here's how we're going to look at chapter 8. Chapter 8 gives us two pictures, two really clear pictures that are opposite in how to respond to the gospel. The gospel is God's good news of salvation. It's his mystery revealed. Here's what I've been doing in history. It involves a cross. It involves a tomb that's now empty. It's the risen Jesus Christ, God come in the form of a man, dying for our sin, conquering our sin and death, and he's now alive and well right now. That's the mystery of the gospel that's being proclaimed. We're going to see both a warning and a welcome here. Here's the title picture I have for this morning, and it's very specific. The gospel is a matter of life and death. This is one of the things that I understand as a Christian, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. I realize this is a life and death matter. And in talking to people who don't yet see that, they just go, why are you getting so worked up? I had a loved one one time say, when I decided I was going to move from pursuing architecture at San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, to become a pastor. This loved one said, um, can't, is this because, I mean, can't this just remain a hobby? Like, do you have to make this a career? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can. I mean, but it's so all-encompassing that, honestly, architecture has lost its appeal to me. So even if I'm an architect, even if I change my mind, I do this for a year and I go back to it'll still not be a hobby. It will be my only thing, the main thing. So the gospel is life and death, and it involves a decision. This movie's been out long enough, so if I spoil the ending for you, sorry. But Polar Express shows up at this kid's yard. There's some magic involved. It's sort of spectacular. There's a train in his street coming down uh, the way. There's excitement and opportunity, but this child is rightfully skeptical. And a decision is put before this kid, isn't it? Get on or get off? Well, where's it going? Why, to the North Pole, of course. And then here's the other thing. A decision must be made. Why? Because the conductor has a timetable to keep. There's some bigger plan happening, and you don't just get to sit there all day in your front yard. So the kid decides, you know what? I'm not so sure about this. I'm not going to get on board. It's binary. You get on or you get off. He steps back. The train begins to roll, and something in him clicks, and he changes his mind. He runs he's able to get on kind of at the last second. He's now on board. Think about the invitation of Christ. Get on board with the kingdom of God. It's going this way. Get on or get off. The choice is completely yours, and you've got to make it. Choose to get on board. The decision to decline is ours, but it results in missing out. It results in missing out ultimately on life. Listen to Joshua 24, where Joshua the leader after Moses is leading people into the promised land. And here's what he says in Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
Whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is proclaiming a life and death decision to them. Serve the false gods of your ancestors, serve the false gods of your culture. But as for me and my household, we're choosing to follow the one true God. Choice is yours. He mimics the same thing Jesus offers later on. We actually see both of these responses in this chapter. So the key figure in here that God is using is Philip. Philip is another one of the deacons. Remember, there was a food fight within the family about widows being served and all that in Acts chapter 6. They raised up deacons. Deacons are just servants who were appointed men full of the Holy Spirit. These seven deacons went out to sort of solve this issue. Philip is one of those. And he models what occurs when true faith occurs. You know what happens when a disciple really follows Jesus? They hear and do what Jesus says. They do both of those. That's the simplest definition of a disciple. What is a disciple of Jesus? They hear and do what Jesus says, period. So watch for this as we kind of walk through this chapter. What has Jesus already said to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see persecution flare flare up. We see people flee. Now look at verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Track the geography just for a second. From Jerusalem now down to Samaria. The gospel is beginning to expand. The mission is spreading. In Samaria, there's revival taking place. If you are an evangelist, if you're a teacher of any kind, whether it's one person, a whole classroom, or a whole city, teachers, we have several teachers sitting in this room right now. Isn't it a joy if they all hang on your every word and they're getting it? They're responding? They're getting the message? That's really thrilling. It's, it's exhilarating. That's what's going on. And then in Samaria, this happens. Verse 9. We're going to be introduced to Simon the Samaritan sorcerer. You've heard of the good Samaritan? This might be dubbed the bad Samaritan. Okay, He's Simon the sorcerer from Samaria. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Here's what I'm going to do with the rest of our time. I want to show you four things from this passage about how to spot a phony. So fake ministries and fake churches abound, and they share some things in common. 
Okay? So if you're taking notes, this is the structure. This is the framework for the rest of the morning. Here's number one. Fakes exalts a person instead of Christ. So fake ministries, false prophets, teachers you want to avoid exalt a person instead of Christ. So who is amazing in Samaria? Simon. And in case they forget, it says he himself reminds them. He says he's someone great. So it's not just like, stop it some more. Don't say how great I am. He's like, hey, in case you forgot, remember last week? I'm still great. I got something else for you. Fakes exalt in a personality or a person, not Christ. I grew up at a mega church. We were one of the mega churches in the country at the time. It's called Venture Christian Church now. It's down the street. It's where I was saved. It's where I met my beautiful bride. It's where I was on staff. I don't have a beef with the megachurch. I will tell you, though, some megachurches, maybe many megachurches, exalt and promote and are based on a person, a very gifted, very charismatic, very likable, very interesting one that you want to keep paying attention to, person. And so what happens is that person being exalted is subtle, and they become celebrity pastors. I think celebrity pastor is a weird oxymoron in the New Testament scriptures. I don't know that we should have celebrity pastors, but we do. They, they abound. Now, that being said, small churches are just as guilty of this. In fact, small churches, it might be easier even to have it be built on one person. In a megachurch, there's no way that one person can do everything. No way. But in small churches, it's quite possible to just keep going, well, the pastor's going to do it, the pastor's going to do it, the pastor's going to do it. So megachurch, small church. Fakes exalt in a person, not in Christ. Let me just put this out to us. If a song or a sermon or a book, or a podcast, or a special YouTube channel leaves you amazed at the servant instead of the master they are supposedly pointing to, caution. Now that may be in your own heart. Isn't that true? In the Old Testament, we see it over and over. Give us a king. Give us a king. We want someone, just a person that we can see and go to and talk to and hear and see and all of that. God succumbs and actually gives that to them once in a while. But who's our king? It's Jesus. Jim just prayed this. Who's the senior pastor of this church? It's Jesus. He's the senior pastor of every church. Anyone who serves as an elder in a church, the idea is a shepherd, but we have one chief shepherd. It's Jesus. I like the picture of sheepdogs. Sheepdogs help corral the sheep. And they do things. But you know what sheepdogs do? They, their cue is always on the shepherd. Where am I going? Am I looping them this way? Am I going that way? Am I, oh, sit still. Okay, I'll sit. Wag, 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 wag. I love the shepherd. <laughs> if, if people treat the pastor, the pastors, the elders, all one office in the New Testament, as a shepherd who somehow has a grander, greater view of, than, than, than sheep, then again, it's easy to begin elevating them to think they have a special connection, a special way to God, all these different things. I am here to tell you, I am a man like all the other men in here 
in that I'm a Christian who has my eyes on Jesus and who struggles to interpret my own stories and my own struggles, I'm called into a unique position of shepherding the church in this season. It's beautiful that Philip is what we would call a regular Christian. There's no such thing. We're all priests. Royalty before God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Philip, the food servant, by the end of uh, of the letter is going to be Philip the evangelist. Why? Because he just does this and whole cities come to revival. Love that picture. All right, number two. Fakes draw followers with flash. What does that mean? It means that entertainment and stirring the emotions sells. Not just for Christianity. It sells concert tickets. It sells products. Constantly entertaining and constantly appealing to emotion. When you appeal to the flesh, people come like moths to a flame. We're warned about this in other places of Scripture. That in the last days, people will come to have, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who tickle their ears. Teachers who read the ratings just like a politician or an influencer on Twitter or you know, some kind of social media platform and saying, what do I say? Oops, that, that nudge that way, I, I lost some followers. I'm going to back off of that stance. Let me go over here. Yep, that's really grabbing hold. I'm going to lean into that. There are people who teach and lead ministries and write books totally based on, on that. That's entertainment and emotion. Like a single match, there's, an on, there, there's a bright flame. Ooh, look at that. But there's no substance to it. It doesn't keep burning. It doesn't, it's not really useful to you. So week after week, it's another match, right? We have an endless supply of matches. And we can get duped into week after week. Wow, that was so moving. How are you doing? I, just, I, I need to make it to Sunday to kind of flare up again. That's not how the Christian life was meant to be. I want to tell you, before God, on a weekly basis, I pray this prayer. God, help me not to preach to not offend. In other words, I don't want to come up here and think, who am I going to offend? Let me back off of that. That's my, that would be my sin struggle. Others of you, you're like, Lord, help me not just to go offend people just because. Right? There's different personalities. I lean more on people-pleasing. So I'm like, God, help me just to give it straight and truthful, even if it hurts. Here's the truth. I don't even know who it hurts. You guys surprise me. Sometimes you guys are like, I can't believe you said that. I'm like, oh, this part? They're like, no, it's fine with that. This over here. I'm like, really? That bummed you out? I didn't think that was even an issue for anyone. So I pray. I just lay on like, God, I'm your servant. You're the one who knows what's going on. Help me not tamper with the word of God. Help me just to give it to you straight. People who don't focus on the mission of calling sinners to repent gain a following. People who don't offend the sensibilities of the age and the God made up in people's minds gain a following. Heart change is required to heal our loves. Listen to 1 John 2. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. 
and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't you, Sunday morning, don't you just go, yeah, this is so true. God, I love you. I sing with all of my heart. God, I love you. But friends, like me, you are tested. It doesn't have to be a Monday. It could be Sunday afternoon. You're tested. You're tested Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Saturday rolls around. That might be some of the biggest temptation. It's me time. I need some time. So we're tested in our loves. On Sunday morning, I do need a a, a jolt. Not just on Sunday morning. I need to reawaken my loves every single day. God, I love you. I'm yours. I reject the things that are going to try and steal my love, my heart from you today. Let that steer where my feet go, where my mind goes, where my eyes go, where my mouth goes. God, help me. I'm desperately in need. So Simon creates a circus in the name of Christ instead of a church in the name of Christ. Friends, this is commonplace around here, around the world. Number three, fakes exercise power that is not from God. Is it fake power? No, no, no. It's very, very real power that Simon's doing. But it's not from God. We have demons that are disguised as God that display power of various kinds. Let me take you back to Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus chapter 7. You may know the story, but Moses is given some signs, and he comes and performs them for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, so what? Bring in my guys. And he thinks, let's see whose magic is better. It's magic versus magic. But it's really God power versus demon power. That's what's happening. And so they have this little uh, contest. It's pretty sweet. I won't spoil the ending for that one. This is why we are called to examine the spirits. What is the spirit? What is the fruit of that ministry, of that pastor, of that book? What is the fruit in your own life? There are people who've been healed and redeemed as they've exercised the demon of talk radio because it just left them stirred up all day long. They'd listen to it going into work. They began to drive more aggressively, behave more aggressively. They get all worked up. And just pick your topic. It could be politics. It could be sports. You know, it could be, I don't know, Renaissance art. People can argue about anything. So test the spirits. Don't be taken in by them. Now a really interesting thing happens. Okay, We have three things that we see sort of uh, what, what fakes do on a routine basis. Here's the really interesting thing. Simon becomes a Christian. Woohoo! Verse 13, look at it. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So far, so good. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The one who was amazing everyone else, he's now amazed. It's kind of fun to track where the amazement uh, falls. So, headline, bad Samaritan becomes the good Samaritan. Yay! The gospel's taking root. The gospel's transforming. Simon came as he was, but he didn't stay that way because of the gospel. Man, this is just like, you're like, yeah, what a good thing. But let me just say this, not so fast. Not so fast. 
As we keep reading, we're going to see some things. Fake churches are led by false prophets, and fake churches led by false prophets create false converts. If you don't have a category in your mind of what a false convert is, you should develop it. We talk about false converts quite a bit from this stage. It's the reason, by the way, why a person will come to you and say, you're a Christian. Well, how come Christians at the same rate as non-Christians are getting divorced? How come Christians at the same rate as non-Christians look at pornography on a business trip? How come Christians at the same rate as as non-Christians are are willing to cheat, to lie, to get ahead, whatever? You fill in the blank. Let me tell you the answer in part because of false converts. Jesus predicted this, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, listen, note how they display power not from God. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Do you see it? Fakes are doing powerful things, amazing people, reminding you how amazing they are in case you forget even in the name of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This gives explanation to so many different things. Why did that Christian leader fall? I don't know, but maybe I wasn't a part of the ministry. I don't know the details. Why that scandal? Why this over here? Why the statistics that show that Christians are the same as non-Christians? Well, when you have this category in your mind, you say, I know part of the reason, that's why. Because there will be people who will, who will say things, but not really live them. So like many then and like many now, Simon believes and is baptized, but he has no heart change. Look at verse 17. It says, and they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone, anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Out of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. You want to know what's in your heart? Listen to yourself. Simon's loves have not changed whatsoever. Simon's actions are showing that. One more. Fakes are obsessed with the material rather than the spiritual. I was working at a bank as a bank teller while I was going through San Jose Christian College and I remember uh, a new employee came. I always trained all the new employees. And I was training this new employee. And she goes, uh, you're in school. What are you in school for? And I said, oh, I'm studying to be a pastor. And she goes, oh, there's good money in that, huh? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, not if you're doing it right. Uh, not money here, like wealth in heaven. What do you mean by that? I was so shocked by it that I thought, you, I, no, a pastor But she was dead serious. So what do pastors, what do ministry leaders have to gain? 
Look around you. Big, lavish homes, vacations, private jets, loads of money, a parking spot right out front that says reserved for pastor so-and-so, reverend so-and-so, the most prominent place. Didn't Jesus speak against all these things? Woe to you who love first place. Woe to you who elevate yourself amongst the body. Woe to you who would gain money and not gain God. You can't serve both. You're dead. You are dead in your sin. Financial gain and fame are still gained in the name of Jesus Christ. It should be shocking to any spirit-filled Bible-reading Christian that that's true, but it is going on rampantly. Let me give you an example of this that was so potent. About a year after Katrina hit New Orleans, I'm there with my then maybe 10-year-old son. We had a college group from the ministry I was leading at the time. And as we were there, we're near the Ninth Ward District, which was very hard hit. And we were staying in a suburban, mostly white church that housed about 2,500 people in their auditorium. And then we would travel about 40 minutes into the, the different wards, the different neighborhoods, and we would go serve with mostly black inner city urban ministries. And I remember talking to this one guy. We all wore a shirt that said, I heart N-O, New Orleans. And I was talking to this guy one time, and he said, before Katrina hit, do you know how many churches were just in this, this group of neighborhoods? I said, no, how many? And I don't remember the exact number, but it was just over 100, 114, let's say. He said, Katrina hit. He goes, do you know how many churches are around today? I said, no, tell me. 12. Why? Simple. The money dried up. The fame dried up. It got hard. Do you see that persecution is a tool in the hand of God? That persecution, pain, is actually a gift? I just read 1 Peter 1 this morning. I wasn't thinking about that at all for this sermon. But it talks about, even though you're going to suffer some testing right now, but rejoice. You have this thing that's way more valuable than any suffering or sacrifice you will ever uh, have. Persecution always purifies the church. You want to see the fakes? Watch a persecution happen. Man, Katrina did that for me. Persecution also produces greater effectiveness. You know what happened as we walked around New Orleans? Everywhere I went with that shirt on, people were open and receptive to the gospel. To the gospel. Not to God bless you, God loves you, to the gospel. You asked one simple question. Tell me about your loss that you experienced. And you start from pain and loss and discouragement and death and the bondage of grief And you take that road to Jesus and the cross and the hope that the empty tomb means over and over and over again. In fact, I was told by this one guy, he said, you as a white guy with your 10-year-old blonde-haired son, you would never be safe walking this neighborhood, going to that McDonald's at 2 p.m. on a random Wednesday pre-Katrina. As a Christian brother, I would not let you do this. Those shirts on, everyone loves you. Why? Greater ministry effectiveness because persecution showed these are the people who love you they have no motive they don't want your money they don't want your fame they are here to serve you tell you something strange 
little true confession time. I came home praying, God, what is the Bay Area's Katrina? You use, I, I don't wish, why would I wish death and hardship and natural disaster? on? I don't. But God, if and when it comes, would you stir up revival the way I saw it in the midst of pain and destruction in New Orleans? Now, I want you to listen very carefully for the warning given by Peter to Simon, the supposed convert who's been baptized. Okay? Look at verse 20 and hear the warning, the life and death warning that's found here. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Friends, Peter's warning is life and death. And what does he go to? He goes to the heart. From Easter, we changed a message that you need a change of heart, not a change of your stated beliefs, not a change of your checked box on what your religious preference is, a change of heart. The heart is not right. The heart motives are still fleshly. Interestingly, we have some extra biblical early historians. Josephus is one, Irenaeus is another, but they say that this guy, Simon, remained a heretic the rest of his days. He was called the Antichrist by Christians of the day. He didn't have a heart change. Here's the conclusion. We're taking part two next week. We're going to look at the positive side of this, the Ethiopian eunuch. You've probably heard of him. But here's the conclusion, that people will always want the emotional, spiritual high of God without submitting to or obeying the real God. Let me say that again. People will always want the emotional, spiritual high of God without submitting to or obeying or really dealing with the real God. You and I, friends, are lost idol worshipers or lost self-worshippers unless the grace of God today keeps us from death. That's the reality. Each week when we come in here, we are to seek and celebrate and be humbled afresh by the living God. I want to invite the band to come on up here. Church, Simon is a warning to respond to the gospel, not as an add-on to your old life of sin. Adding it on to your old life of sin leaves you in your sin. You can take this in later and read it a second time, but maybe close your eyes for, for just focus sake and just let the words of Ephesians 2.1 wash over you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, You have been saved. God, no amount of emotion or hype or lighting or words or storytelling or media will ever bring us to life. God, it's your spirit breathed into us that causes us to be born again to be raised from the spiritual death. God, I pray that those of us who have had this experience, who you have transformed from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, would treasure that afresh today. God, heal and keep our loves straight. There's no life in the lesser loves, making them ultimate. And God, for those who today may say, I was saved under false pretexts. I'm a false convert. I I thought I was sincere. I did the church things. I got baptized. But I don't know that I have the spirit of the living Christ in me. God, would you stir in them self-examination, which we are called to do. See if you pass the test. See if you are in the faith. God, you want us assured that we're in. You're a good father that doesn't want us questioning our status in the family of God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for examples in history and in scripture. Guard us and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray.